This week on Tuesday Noon, it's race and diversity in America. Threats of terror and cultural bifurcation in our country call to question just how diverse a nation we really are. Are we the people really able to understand one another for our differences and move forward together? Or are we embroiled in a demographic quagmire at home, at work, and in the media? That's today on Tuesday Noon for September 12, 2006. Welcome to Tuesday Noon. We're, uh, we're back. Another Tuesday, another noon, as it always seems to be. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Pete Wright, uh, uh, sitting around the round table with my uh, uh, colleagues here. Who, who are you? Who am I? Yeah. I was wondering that this weekend. Mm-hmm. As you should. <laughs> Mr. James, Jamie Whitley. Jamie, good to see you, man. Good to see you. Jamie can't decide if he's going to be James you know, or Jamie. I can't. I know. It's, it's this whole professional odd. persona versus your internet fame. Well, no, it's not that. It's, my real name is James. It's but the I, other Jamie. I grew up, everybody calling me Jamie. And, and so I always go back and forth. So it's really weird. My brother calls me James. My mom calls me Jamie. So I don't know. When they see you riding your motorcycle, you could be Jimbo. I, I, yeah, no. No. <laughs> But thanks. Well, you'll always be Jamie to us. I'm sorry. I'm it's just to be hard Jamie. to I'm, change. I'm happy to. Okay, that's good. And in the comfy chair? Mary Bradbury Jones. Mary, it's good to see Who you. Who can't figure out her last name. Yeah. So we all <laughs> have our issues true. in the world, we do, don't, don't we? We? <laughs> we do. Who am I? Who am I? Well, we have a very interesting topic today, and I think it's actually very topical. We're going to be talking about uh, race and diversity and um, and uh, the issues that are, are, are coming to play here in our society right now. And, and uh, as a guest, we've brought on our uh, uh, friend and colleague, Charlita Shelton. Charlita, how are you? You're on the phone with us today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks, Pete. Excellent. It's good to have you here. Now, Charlita, you've been with the organization for uh, how long? Nearly 10 years. Nearly 10 years. So around 97, you joined with us and uh, uh, you've been uh, in the academic role in terms of your background and then uh, somehow you ended up in this diversity role. Can you give us a little bit of background on the, the winding road that it took you to get where you are? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, just to mention, I've been with the organization nearly 10 years in academic affairs. Started in San Diego campus and spent some time there, then traveled off to Detroit and some time there and then here in Phoenix. And when I was brought to Phoenix, and, and I've been here, oh, nearly five years, uh, I was asked by our, our former president, Laura Palmer Noon, to not only take on the role of associate vice president for campus academic affairs, uh, because of my background and experience in that area, but she knew I had quite the passion and, and background in diversity, and asked me kind of on a part-time basis to to be um, a Powell's diversity officer. So was dabbling a little bit there in terms of diversity. I formed a diversity task force to to really uh, look at uh, some initiatives that the institution could uh, uh, carry forth and and did that. And then with, of course, the new administration, uh, Brian Mueller being president of Apollo, and he he certainly takes diversity to heart. And he knew he was familiar with the work that I had done and felt a need to really have someone serve in that role full time and asked if I would do so. Uh, and, and so after all of the years I've spent, even prior to University of Phoenix in academic affairs, I kind of hung up my, my academic affairs hat and now taking on uh, diversity, which would be, again, inclusive of all of Apollo's family, all, all of the subsidiaries, and then uh, really uh, training and education and then recruitment of retention, and that would involve all employees which were between uh, 12 to 14,000 employees now, and then all of our faculty, and I, I suspect we're about at, you know, a good 23, 24,000 faculty uh, Apollo-wide. So uh, that's, that's, how I, that's the journey, and that's how I got here. Part of where we want to go with this discussion is, is to talk about the, the social climate that we're in right now and talk about what 
how that repra- how that manifests as as sort of diversity in organizations and uh, at least those are the things that I'm really interested in talking about. I mean right now we've got uh, just minutes ago uh, I was uh, uh, looking at uh, Reuters 5 years after September 11 US is still not safe and 3 paragraphs in uh, they start talking about how this is this you know could this possibly be um, you know a, an issue of of politicking that you know is are we really more or less safe than we were or is this an administration ploy to establish a culture of fear? No matter what you think about a culture of fear, when you look at an article like this and then you go over to twenty four dash dot com, which is a, a a public sector website, one in six. Avoid Muslims on bus or tube from an article in, uh, in London. So here we are. We've got a culture of fear. We've got a culture of uh, uh, that we are not safe. And now we're starting to hear the same sort of language about another race that we we've you know we were hoping that we're we're starting to to stamp out. Well, I mean, is also, that real? We also hear it in in the immigration debate as well, don't we? About mm-hmm. the illegal immigrants from Mexico, sure, and how we're handling that. You hear it in the news with uh, like the new survivor program that's come out, where we're separating people by their ethnicity and putting them in teams and those sorts of things. And and it is an interesting question: Are we actually becoming more culturally and ethnically divided? Rather than united, are we going, are we going, are we going back? Are we going backwards? That's really the question. Well, I certainly hope we're not going backwards, <laughs> given the fact that we are. We're here in in, in 2006, and and uh, you know I I'm so pleased. I mean, you think about it. I just did a uh, uh, it was uh, actually a VMAG for uh, for the Apollo Group, University of Phoenix, where yes, the University of Phoenix would give a message, and I talked a little bit about diversity in that and. I reminded folks of um, Plessy versus you know, Ferguson, uh, but in particular, 50 years ago, how we dealt with uh, separate but equal in, in this country with Brown versus the Board of Education. So I would say that we have come uh, a long way. But then on the other hand, um, we can't ignore, I think it's so important to talk about the issue of, of race relations current day, the nervousness folks feel, and I think Pete mentioned in particular, uh, uh, how folks, you know, since, especially since 9-11, or just the feeling of terrorism, associating that to Muslims, how folks even feel uh, uh, about that. And I can tell you, I was in Detroit uh, for 9-11, and, and some folks know that uh, the Detroit, uh, the, the, the larger community of Detroit there in um, Dearborn, happens to have the largest Muslim population in the United States. Uh, at that time, I was director of academic affairs for Detroit, a number of Muslim faculty, a number of Muslim employees. And I can tell you, you know, just their stories, meaning those individuals Muslim, and how unfortunately threatened that they felt because they happened to be Muslim, and I'm talking about those who would dress in their normal, their, their, their Muslim dress, and how they were identified even in, you know, in, in that community, in Detroit community, as being Muslim. The treatment, whether they're on on campus, the treatment outside of campus, and I think what it boils down to in that is just fear, and a lot. Of, and most times we are so driven by fear, but I think that if we were able to provide more awareness, and, and of course, in my role as diversity officer for for the Apollo Group, I feel that the you know the biggest element to our success in becoming an inclusive 
uh, community. And I mean, whether the inclusiveness, I can, you know, speak to Apollo Group or outside, is through education and training and awareness. And I think if more individuals were aware of different cultures, whether it be the Muslim culture, whether it be the Hispanic culture, whether it be, you know, be the African-American culture, on and on, that with that awareness, that breaks down the fear. To, to a certain degree, but um, but how do you know, how do you really attack that? I mean, how do you how do you really attack that when we're in? I mean, I just here's a, a, a recent poll of a thousand voters uh, conducted just uh, just ten days ago. Sixty percent say that we should single out people who quote look Middle Eastern for security screening at airports. I mean, that whether or not I mean, I, I look at a response sample of a thousand people. That doesn't you know I. That doesn't really shake me up from a marketing perspective. What does is there's a group of 600 people who think that, you know, anybody who, quote, looks Middle Eastern are dangerous. Well, you had people calling for Muslim-only lines at the airport. That's exactly what that is, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, how do you know if someone's Muslim? It's not clear. How do you get through the barrier of education to get to people who are, are whose first line of defense is, is propagandized fear? Well, and does the media contribute to that in, in the way that we present a particular race or, or Muslims, or again, go back to illegal immigrants or whatever. So we present them in a certain light so that we create this culture which says, oh, well, if you fit this particular profile, then we stereotype you and say, therefore, your odds of being a terrorist go up. Therefore, we're, we're worried about it. And, and what responsibility does the media have in that and again, I go back to Survivor, when we do things where we separate things out by race, let's say that one particular race, maybe the Asian Americans, kick everybody else's butt. Now, have we then created this atmosphere which says that this particular class of people is superior? And, and does the media hold any part in that? Well, in a stereotyping, we, there's good stereotyping and there's bad stereotyping. And, and uh, unfortunately, if I am a family that lives, let's say, outside of just for example, and forgive me anyone from Des Moines, Iowa, but if I lived outside of Des Moines, Iowa, and I had uh, little to no contact with anyone who happens to be different from me, and all I'm doing is watching Survivor or watching other uh, mm -hmm. programs that may, uh, because of the media, media stereotype individuals, that's all I have to go by. Well, that is I, I think, and I think Jamie said that the media has great responsibility in that. Well, I think they do, although I, that's where we tend to get a lot of our education, unfortunately, in the United States these days, is through television. And if you are in a town and that's all you see, then that's, that's what you believe. And, and so then you become the stereotype, and then, then that's why you answer polls the way you do, because you don't know any different necessarily. Uh, and, and I don't think that's a good thing. But who's... Well, it's not, no, it's not. And, and I think it's interesting uh, that you take individuals. I was born in Chicago. I was raised in Pullman, Michigan. Pullman, Michigan has a population of 500. If I had to guess during that time frame, I was there, which would have been uh, the mid-60s, the late 60s, uh, probably about 20% African-American, 15% Hispanic, um, mainly migrant workers, and the rest would be Anglo. And if I had stayed there, I would have had a very interesting view of the world being raised as a farmer's daughter. However, I expanded my horizons by going to college and becoming educated. And I think that, and I'm not, you know, saying necessarily, although, you know, we all, I think, in, in this room would be proponents of um, education and higher education, that does lend itself to uh, 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 putting yourself, I think, in a spot where you can be more inclusive because you have a better understanding of those who are different 
rather than being within communities, let's say, that it's extremely isolated, so you would not receive any type of diversity education, if you will, aside from what you see on TV. Well, and that's really the question. Are, when you look at things like this, when you get the, the, you know, the survivor issue, the competition based on performance by race, is – uh, you know, I, I think higher education, yeah, we, we all are proponents of higher education, but is elementary education, is, you know, high school education, are these programs effectively dealing with the race discussion? Are, are they effectively dealing with in, in you know, uh, in, in sort of rural middle America? Well, but it's more than just the programs, Pete. Think about socially where we live, where where we tend to then populate because we're not there's a lot of arguments out there these days that we are not as integrated as we used to be and we're becoming more and more segregated so so then we'll have populations where primarily african-american or anglo-saxon or hispanic or whatever and so in a lot of ways it's just being echoed in our communities so it's more i think than just a program it's it's you see it in the cities a lot these days where you People are sticking together and and separating and not coming together like we would want them to. Oh, so you're saying just in terms of our in the society, way the cities are developing this sort of this cultural homogeneity that absolutely. So then, does does Survivor just become? And this is always the question of media: is media reflection of of the times, or or is it driving it? And or a Survivor just is it just on a its last leg, trying so hard to get one more season because they it, do horribly last. Year. Or is it just a reflection of Bad. essentially what we're seeing in our cities these days? Well, I, I don't I don't know. That's interesting, Jamie. You should say that. I mean, I, I have I know of individuals who have been you know African Americans who have lived primarily in African American communities who then lived in primarily Anglo communities, uh, and then the, the counter opposite. I think that it has and, and, and yes, we do have extremely uh, segregated cities. Detroit still is the uh, uh, it's the most segregated city in the United States today. But that was true for, for, for Detroit even 50 years ago, unfortunately. But I would like to think that through some type of experience of others, and I kind of go back to, I'm agreeing with Pete, uh, in, in the sense that if we're able to provide education along the lines of whether we start in early, early childhood in terms of what is taught in school, and we can look at the differences of what is taught in school, even when we look at history, say 30, 40 years ago, and what's current day. It is all about the experience. I still say that, you, that, that yes, you would not have as much richness if you were raised, let's say, or not raised necessarily, or lived in, you found yourself living in um, a community that's primarily, let's say, Anglo, for instance, or primarily Asian, because most folks would say, oh, well, now you, you know, you're exclusive. You may not have any you know, experience in terms of dealing with others, and which you know, kind of uh, perpetuates, I think, stereotypes and prejudices and things of that nature. But uh, uh, I think it's all through, you know, you walk out of that community. You walk out of that community to what? To your workplace, possibly? And is your workplace different? And are you able to learn there in your workplace about others and others' differences? Good questions. I mean, I think right. in some cases, pockets of the country, yes. Pockets of the country, no. Well, and and I think to some extent the concept of political correctness has, in a way, eroded diversity because now we, in some ways, people take political correctness to the level of we pretend we're not different. We don't acknowledge any differences. We pretend we're all the same. 
And then they then they'll turn and say, see, I'm you know, I'm not a racist. I value diversity. I think everybody's the same. And it's like, wait a second. That that's to, is the complete opposite of diversity. Right. Diversity is embracing the differences because we are celebrating the differences. Exactly. We are different. Excellent point, Mary. Excellent, excellent point. I, I, I talk about this actually. Uh, uh, I, I call it the uh, sitting in the room with it. There's the elephant in the middle of the room. And and I say that you know when it when it comes to having to have the you know the very um, sensitive conversations of race and even looking at you know I keep going back to my experience at the University of Phoenix of course but knowing that we happen to be 40 percent diverse in terms of our student body I mean race and ethnic uh, race and uh, ethnically diverse uh, about 25 uh, percent diverse in our faculty 30 percent diverse in in terms of our employees no one everyone would rather probably just sit around a room and hold hands and sing. We are the world. We are the people, and there are no, you know, there. I, I don't not me. make any issue of difference. I don't. I don't want to sing. We are the world. <laughs> we don't. We don't want you, you to sing to anything. <laughs> no, hey, Charlita, can you take a step back for a minute? When you say that the organization, just in terms of a measurement, is forty percent diverse, what exactly is that measuring? That's that's uh, race and ethnically diverse. So we're we're we're, we're uh, breaking it down from uh, Native American, Asian, uh, uh, African American, Hispanic. And then Anglo. So when you say it's 40% diverse, 40% of the population organizationally is of a different... Uh... That is correct. And matter of fact, Pete, when you look at our students who come to us with 0 to 24 credits, if we look at it from that side of the house, it's, it's become, the statistics become more interesting because then we're well over 50% made up of some different race or ethnicity other than Anglo. What do, what do, you, think that, uh, what do you think that represents? Well, I... Well, I... I mean, I, that's a hard for me to quantify. You'd have to look at uh, other universities, where we're drawing from, what cities. I mean, I, I it, it's hard to tell because you don't know exactly where they're yeah, coming from. Yeah, by population. From, so then well, maybe... and actually, Jamie, it's funny you mentioned that because that's what possibly uh, in part my, my doctoral study is on. Uh, it, it has more to do with uh, the University of Phoenix. Happened, uh, we, we, we have, we're open enrollment. And we're also, um, our, our access is quite viable for individuals of color. It just happens to be. Um, and so with that, other reasons, uh, we happen to attract those individuals of different race and ethnicity here to, to our, you know, to, to our doors. I mean, uh, the last issue of, of uh, diverse issues in higher education, uh, and this is along our graduate level, the University of Phoenix, was one of the number one schools in the country to graduate African American and Hispanic master's level students. Fact. So, if we go back to um, the media for a second, because and I don't want to beat on this too much, but it's such a fascinating topic for me. Again, if you go back to Survivor and we say, well, the media propagates some of the challenges and the divisions within the United States today. Uh, are they really responsible? I mean, can we can we just shut shut them down, or we really just vote with our pocketbook? There was a, I read this article about uh, the New York City civil rights leaders and all these people who walked out of this this meeting, these board members, and said uh, New York City Council is what it was, and they held a press conference and said that the show has the potential to set back our nation's race relations by fifty years and. And et cetera. And then I'm wondering silently, well, how many of them are going to go home and, and actually watch this? You know, and, and mm. I mean, because mm-hmm. so we say one thing, but then we have to vote with our pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. And if the ratings go through the roof, 
then maybe what we say and what we're actually doing aren't the same. And it, it, exactly, which which perpetuates exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is this idea of of a um, of of you know education with intent and using the media to do so. One of the shows we were talking about earlier is this new FX show. Um, from Ice Cube, you know, I mean, it's it's this black white, that's what it's called, black white, and uh, it's the the show. Or the premise is you take a, a family of three from white rural America and a family of of uh, three African American family, and you put them in makeup and integrate them at whatever level is possible to into those cultures, into that their respective opposite culture. Or not opposite is not even a fair word to use there, but. So you're changing their outward yeah. ethnicity, right? Yeah. And for example, the you know the 13 year old uh, uh, white daughter is put in in black makeup, very convincing, and put into a a, a black uh, uh, slam poetry class uh, with with a group of African American students her age. Fascinating study on this issue of integration and how she is able to to deal with that. And her biggest issue is not, it, it, as as you know, would be assumed, is not um, you know being able to integrate with the class. She integrates perfectly. Her biggest issue is carrying around a lie that she's not really black, mm-hmm. which is, I, I mean, you know, at at one point it's really terrifying what they've put these folks through. They're willing to go through the other. It's really beautiful. I mean, it is a beautiful expose on what. What is you know what is we're capable of if you can just well, get past that? Because it's the experience. See, I yeah. mean, it's mm-hmm. the experience that I think both families are going through in you know the opposite skin. It was similar. I don't know if you all remember a book, and I can't even think of the author that was written back in the 1950s called Black Like Me. Yes, and it was an Anglo person, a white individual male who decided, and this was kind of uh, you know this was you know, true civil rights, that he would live uh, in a black man's skin for 30 days. And he essentially, I think, he, I want to say, took some type of pills that changes pigmentation mm-hmm. so that he appeared to be black. And he lived as a black man for 30 days so that he could experience what black individuals experienced during that time frame. And it was frightening. It was absolutely frightening. But to get the point... <laughs> You know, he felt he needed to to do that. And I think, you know, it, with with these families, I mean, it's 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 I what I find the richness and adverseness. Let's say what's going on with Survivor is that someone can see can have an appreciation, let's say, for all people, regardless of who they are. But then they become that person, mm-hmm. and then they live their life, and then they gain hopefully a greater appreciation for those individuals who happen to be different. And so much of the time when you whether it's through a show like Black White or, you know, I'm also thinking of the guy that does those, the documentaries 30 Days, you know, where he had, you know, a Minuteman move in with Hispanics. I mean, basically doing something, some sort of an experience which starts to change their thoughts. And so much of the time, you know, the summary of the experience is, wow, we're all in the end just really the same in terms of what we want in life. You know, we want... To be free, we want to have our kids have good education. You know, we want to, you know, keep a roof over our. We all at the very at the very simplest level, we're, we are similar. And I guess maybe helping people break through all those other stereotypes or or you know their past experiences that have clouded them from seeing somebody for just in the end what they are, which is just another human being. Yeah, I was you know. 
Jamie was talking about the media and, and Survivor, and I think, too, that, you know, we need to look at the other forms of media, newspaper, um, advertisements. And one of the things that popped in my head was during the time of Katrina, and I'm sure everybody remembers this, where you had the two different uh, photographs and you had, you know, a white female and male trudging through the water, you know, carrying stuff and and I can't remember what the term was on them, but it was a very positive term. And then you had almost the same exact picture with African-Americans lugging goods through the water, and they were looters. I, you know, it just, it, simplest stuff coming down to labels that people just throw out there. And, and very subtly, but those things, I think, over time, you know, like Charlotte was saying, they, they, they influence the thoughts, and then our thoughts influence our words, and they influence our actions, and they develop our behavior. So... The, it's more than just the entertainment media, I think, that's doing a disservice to oh, the American public. Yeah, but, I think the news media is, 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 is takes a great hand in responsibility for, for where we are right now, for, for not, in fact, taking a stand against a lot of these, a lot of these just ridiculous images that they, they put forward. Why are you smirking like that, James? Well, I'm thinking, is it the media's responsibility, do they, do they report or do they make news? And, and, and so that's why I was kind of, and, and, and I know the argument that they're going to say is, well, we don't make the news, we report the news. So in the case of those two pictures, and I don't recall them, right, but let's pretend that actually one case was looter and one case was not. They would say, well, we were just uh, reporting the news. And so then the reason I was kind of hemming and is, does the media have a responsibility to then go and say, oh, well, we've done these two pictures and they compare and contrast and you might draw the wrong conclusion, therefore we better not report this like this. Is is that their role? Or is their role just to report what they see? And so I I don't know the answer necessarily, but and it, it was probably done unintentional, but should they move to the next level of thinking about what they report and its societal impact. Yes, and what society is going to interpret what they see, which is always an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, And I say that uh, in a sense of of thinking about Katrina in in particular, because what I got out of Katrina, interestingly enough, and and a number of individuals got out of Katrina, there's definitely this black-white issue. And the blacks are the ones that have not, especially in just, um, in, in, in horrendous numbers of those who were affected by Katrina, but really wasn't an issue of class, which is another aspect of diversity, is the class issue. Mm-hmm. And the class issue for Katrina and, and, and those individuals affected by Katrina had a great deal to do with um, their socioeconomic status right? Um, rather than being exclusively a race. Now, but that's Charlita's list. That's what I see. It's the same lens comes out, you know, Jamie's talking a little bit about the media and, and the media's responsibility. Well, it's kind of interesting. If you think about some people love to watch CNN, some people, and we start talking about the various news programs that all either have a bit of a neutral slant, a liberal slant, or a conservative slant. It depends on what you identify with. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, it, it is true. And I, and I think from a media perspective, what's interesting, and, and you know, Having having worked in the media myself, I mean, it's it's it, I, I I can tell you that more organizations need to have some at least some level of thought to these issues, and most of them don't. The major media, the Fox, the CNNs, they they have they all have an agenda. The mm-hmm. local 
stations, right? The local affiliates, that's really where the grassroots are. I mean, we just completed a, uh, at least the first round of a, of a media usage survey, which, which says, you know, of, uh, and we had some 6,000 respondents and of these individuals who responded said, how do you get your media and what media do you trust to uh, trust the most in terms of, you know, where you believe the messages that, that they're sending you? And far and away, the, they get the, these uh, 6,000 respondents say they get their media from their local newspaper and their local television station, and they trust those messages the most. After that comes the internet and national signals, you know, TV and, and news. Uh, it's these local stations that don't have the resources or, frankly, the, the sort of philosophical history, uh, cultural history to, that, that would indicate to them that they need to think about these issues and what they're giving to a community above and beyond just reporting the news. Are they making the news? By the nature of the words they use, they're making news. Right. They're making history. But I would even argue that at a local level that they have agendas too, which is to survive. I mean, that's the very core. And news, in a way, has now become uh, a commodity in itself. I mean, they they compete. They're competing for viewers. Um, They're competing for those advertising dollars. And so, you know, it seemed like, and I I mean, not being a media major and, and having spent a lot of time, but it seems like where it really all started to change was when CNN came onto the forefront of being a cable news. And all of a sudden now there was this whole area opened up, which is, oh, you mean we could be, you know, we could compete for airtime and, and, and it, and it started to have more of a, you know, as, as I've heard one guy call it, it's an infotainment, um, spin now uh, because it's about getting the viewers and getting the advertising dollars. It's no longer just truly about, you know, the Edward R. Murrow time of the day, which was, you know, being responsible in their reporting, you know, that good old journalism oath that they used to do. It's that sensationalism, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason why I don't watch news at night. One of the reasons I don't watch my local news at night is because I'll count them off 10, 15, 20 negative reports in a row stabbing, shooting, whatever it is, robbery. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't need that. I don't need to be told before I go to bed how bad my world sucks. And and it just is not healthy for me. So I don't watch it. But they're doing it because that's what people want to watch or create sensationalism. It gets them the revenue. It gets them uh, jobs, keep their jobs and whatnot. And so that's what they But also if we aren't scared, then we won't check out the news. I mean, isn't there, is there, I mean, that's... That is the very vicious Nor cycle. Nor would we vote Republican, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Don't well, go. We've got to wonder, though, in this current day and age, why, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, sensationalizing, uh, you know, in the news. Um, look at the, the reality television current day and the hype when, you know, one of the few reality TV shows, I don't know what, seven, eight years ago, nine years, nine years ago, might have been... MTV's Real World was one, right. and then then Survivor came, you know, came of age, and now we have nothing but reality TV. And look, and and reality isn't that interesting? <laughs> Some of the oxymoron to say reality television, but it's the going back to uh, sensationalizing and what the American public is attracted to. So you're right, you know, if if if, if the news is is, and, and I I try to watch as little. I probably read more than I watch, but if I'm going to hear about 
murders and, and uh, just the mayhem of, of, let's say, the greater Phoenix area before I go to sleep at night. That's, that's not too... Uh, <laughs> Well, and particularly, you know, that, that's not comforting to me. Particularly in a in an atmosphere like in a, a cultural atmosphere like Phoenix, but this is everywhere. When you're looking at the at the stabbings and the and the you know the bad news, by and large, it tends to involve an issue of race. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the bad stories that you're hearing about. Well, that, I think that's a social economic issue because, again, somebody who is more apt to commit a crime is in a, a depressed social economic area. And then, ergo, in your particular area, if that is whatever race that is, then unfortunately, yeah, that's what gets reported. Whether that's a reflection of reality as a whole or not, that's what you see because those are the bad things. It's just it, it's probably a sheer numbers issue more mm-hmm. than anything else, well, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it creates a bad picture or it creates a slanted picture. And so, therefore, when we were talking earlier, to me, education is the great equalizer. When you have those experiences and you become more educated about things, then you see it differently. But without that balance on the other side, you then create that slanted view that says, oh, all people of that particular place or that particular area or live in that area are X, Y, Z. And we stereotype them and we carry that around. So it's interesting. I mean, we talk a lot about about the cultural picture, but now I'd, I'd really like to get some thoughts on how this how this applies to the real world. I mean, we you know we, we've got Charlita's expertise in, in her role as a diversity officer for this major organization, and 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 I'm interested in how you go about implementing these tools of change, tools of education, in a way that's appropriate to the work sphere. Because I mean, you know, we've been we were talking about as we were as we were lining up this uh, this this discussion today. How much of it is appropriate? How much of it is expected when you come to work to be taught these issues? How much of it is needed? Uh, you know, are well, these? It, it, it's a very difficult question. I, I mean, I will tell you, even even at the Apollo Group, I remember just it was a month or two ago we came out with a um, uh, essentially a PDF uh, file of uh, you know a PDF shot of myself talking about or at least uh, in script diversity initiatives for Apollo and what we're looking at from an initiative standpoint in creating this, you know, really this, this awareness amongst everyone, both, you know, both faculty employees and also students at, at the Apollo group. So individuals are able to respond to these messages that came out. And I believe this message came out from the HR department. And so I got emails back, and this is through the HR box, that asked questions like, why did I receive this? What is diversity? Now, of course, and I, I can see the shock. You know, I'm not there in the room with you, but I can see, <laughs> see your shocked expression. What is diversity? It was an honest question. The individual was absolutely it was an honest question. So Which is think, fair. How many employees do we have and how many faculty do we have and how many students do we have? And we're starting from there. But the point of the matter is, is that it, it, it's being able to create a culture of awareness, and you can only th- do that through education. For heaven's sake, we're an educational institution, and so we ought to think about um, means, and again, through using, you know, using the, the, the tool of education of how folks can heighten their, their, their level of sensitivity to those who are different, how they're able to understand what inclusiveness means, or just understand those differences. 
fine. At the end of the day, we may not be again going back to the scenario. We're sitting sit, sit around, the, you know, the, the the table. We're all holding hands and we're singing, "We are the world." But I'll tell you, through the awareness and literature shows us through this type of diversity training, through awareness and heightening that that, that level of sensitivity, will make a difference in terms of this is case for diversity. How folks are productive in the workplace that they're able to work together when they understand that other person next to them who happens to be different and why they're different. Mm-hmm. So that's where you start. You don't even start. Most organizations start from even some of the top Fortune 500. They start from celebration when it comes to diversity, meaning diversity, you know, uh, having a diversity department, if you will, or office. You know, well, we're going to celebrate, you know, uh, African-American uh, history month. We're going to celebrate, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic history. We're going to celebrate all these, these these different histories of those who are different. But I say that you have to really back up and kind of start from the education piece, because if you start from just celebration, you're going to leave people out. You don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and on the other side, not only do you leave people out, but we also, I mean, there's this whole, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah. Kwanzaa, I mean, <clears throat> they've got even words for it now. Where yeah, Christmas, all... Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Yeah, exactly. Like that. <laughs> something like that. We call it Kwanhanimus at my house. Kwanhanimus. <laughs> and and in, in some ways, do we do we exasperate the problem? Because we're, I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate all those things. What I'm saying is, is you take something that's a particular thing like Christmas or whatever, and then in, in the need to try and pull everybody in, it changes so much that it radically alters it, and the people are like, wait a second, I'm not doing that. And then and it has almost the opposite effect of what you're trying to do in the first place. Okay, so what you're getting to, what I'm hearing, is the same thing that Mary brought up earlier, because in the workplace, diversity is almost way too easily confused with with political correctness mm-hmm. yeah. that the whole reason you're trying to to be sensitive to to your coworker who is different is because of some rational or irrational need to be politically correct. Uh, and so how do you combat that when you're trying to actually celebrate diversity? Isn't there an even greater risk that you come off as, as patronizing or, you know, striving to do exactly what you're trying not to do in the social context, which is to make diversity invisible so everybody can just get back to work. Let's ignore everything in the spirit of being politically correct without celebrating anything. Everybody can just get back to work and be more productive if we just know, yes, you're different. We, you know, we agree on that. It's about the balance, isn't it? It's about balance. And I think balance in, in, in any of these uh, issues, again, that, that, that deal with this whole, the, you know, the sensitivity of, of, of race or even, or even uh, ethnicity, I think that you can, as organizations have, Fortune 500 organizations and articles that I have read about what they've done in terms of their strife for diversity and creating inclusive inclusive environment for all them all their employees have been able to celebrate whether it happens to be Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa as opposed to the opposite as opposed to me you know uh, remember my days back in living in in uh, living in Virginia where you know you have Jewish individuals who, who are in your workplace and there was no recognition at all that Jewish individuals were there during Christmas so what was a Christmas party well that's a, to, to someone who's Jewish that's not being sensitive at all. And now that's mm-hmm. the opposite end of the of the spectrum on that. But I think that you can have very good balance uh, and call it political correctness, you, you know, whatever whatever the term for it. But but there is a way to have that balance and and it's still recognize and have um, an appreciation for all. But I do mean all, and I'm going to insert in this 
you know, quickly, I feel like I've been taking up a lot of this time here, is when I say all, I, I also mean that the sensitive issue of bringing the white male into the picture. Mm-hmm. I went to a diversity workshop two months ago uh, given by the uh, Diversity Leadership Alliance. It's a, it's a group that's formed many corporations here in town, American Express, Intel, Mayo Clinic, I can go on and on. But they brought this gentleman in to do this diversity training, and it was called the White Man or White Males as Diversity Partner, because oftentimes the Anglo-Saxon Protestant straight male is, excuse the expression, the odd man out, meaning somehow they don't care about this diversity issue because they're the majority, when the opposite is true. And so that was quite an education for more than 150 people in the room to learn about really white male culture and the point of the matter that uh, individuals who happen to be white male or, or fit that, you know, fit that profile that I've just given you care about others that are different, care about having a heightened sense of awareness about others that are different and the reasons why. I think that is wonderful that you just said that because I get the feeling as a Anglo-Saxon Protestant straight white male, right, that the whole discussion of diversity starts with me as a baseline. Everybody has to try to be different from me, right? And, and that's because that, you're an insensitive pig. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I, do I resemble that? <laughs> uh, no, I, but you know, that's, that's really what we're talking about. And you, you, you start hearing the, the issues of, oh gosh, you know, every scholarship out there is on some sort of, you know, you're either left handed or you're Latin, Latino or you're whatever you are. You're different than Anglo white male. I think that's actually a, a valuable point that, that there is a way to be inclusive of that too, and and it goes back to this early education piece. The other thing that strikes me is that you know here's so should we start celebrating a Anglo-Saxon male straight Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am in favor of the Anglo. It'll know? be the A S W M S C. How far do you think that would go before? But this before is, you are in front of but USA this today. Is the, <laughs> I could get on USA Today with this. <laughs> no, oh, hey. well, no, but, but my... this is my this is my point. No, I got, no. you got to let me finish. Oh, okay, one time is that my one time one time. <laughs> the the issue is this that you know here is here is my you know we are raising my kids with Christmas. That's who we are. She doesn't get that at school. No, right? They they, they don't get, get that. You get holiday, mm-hmm. right? Why can't she get? Christmas and something else. You know, why can't we be teaching about all these things in the experience, not just of a classroom setting? Yes, some people celebrate Christmas and some celebrate Hanukkah and some celebrate Kwanzaa. Why can't we actually celebrate through the act of of doing? Because there is so much fear about doing. Well, and and I was cutting you off, but I'm glad I didn't because you actually had an an important thing to say. Thank you, Jamie. You're welcome. But and, and to pick up on that, this is what I worry about when we create all these divisions. Now, again, I have to be sensitive here because I'm not saying it's wrong to create different and, and to recognize different groups and different beliefs. The challenge we have then is do we divide ourselves more because that's we, we're instead of being that inclusiveness like we want to, we're, we're in a lot of ways dividing ourselves and, and making Unfortunately, we make things worse because <clears throat> the action behind them is actually doing it. It's working together. It's celebrating together. It's honoring each other. It, but by creating these artificial lines that you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this, in a lot of ways, I think we create more division than, than we really want. So the melting pot doesn't melt nearly as well. 
it's not a common culture. It's a lot of different cultures doing a lot of different things. And so then, and you see it every day. You see division in politics, for example, and and the right and the left and constituents. And and that's just a reflection, unfortunately, I think, of some of the things that are going on because we're not just one community. Well, I think that when it comes to that division, you have to ask yourself about the aspects of equality in that because most issues and a number of issues that have surrounded race, for example, um, you know, whether we're talking about it started earlier on in the conversation, talking about Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, separate but equal, that truly in this school 50 years ago, schools were segregated, blacks and whites. And really it was a matter of how do we then become, um, become a country that provides um, benefits and services and pure equality to everyone. And so you have to recognize those differences. I think it becomes important because culturally people of different, you know, whatever it happens to be, of a race, ethnicity, whatever have you, gender, there are those differences. So it's about recognizing, being educated about those differences you know, without it being this, without it being the great divide, I think you can go to the other end of the spectrum where it's where you, you know where folks become separatists, if you will. Well, and that's I think my concern. That a lot of this has come about just in you know in terms of my own education about it, and it has to do with whether or not individuals feel like they are given certain rights and responsibilities uh, from an equality standpoint, because this country has not always been so equal with that. And that's really where the cultural sensitivity comes in, that it was an issue of black versus white and not so much of Christmas versus Hanukkah. Right. Should we have, uh, this is kind of a off topic but related, should we have a common language in the United States where we say English is our particular language as a way to bring people together or are we okay to really have different languages? And And, and not that people aren't going to speak different languages, but really going out of our way to, you know, try and cover all our bases everywhere. Or should we I mean, say... isn't English the kind no, of language? It's not, well, it's not, it's not certainly defined as such. It's not anywhere. And so then we don't always even have a common language with which to create a culture with. Well, I have to, oh, I have to parse that yeah. question. Maybe because well, because I, guess, are, are you saying I mean, that's so, an immigration issue, really. I mean, I mean, well, but it's keystone. also a culture issue. So go to Canada where you have... You have two parts of Canada. You have French speaking and English speaking, right? Yeah. They're very, very, very divided. But you look at Vancouver, which is which is not French versus you know English. Sure. It's it's that's ex- Vancouver is BC in general is the is not the melting pot. It's the stew. I mean, there are so many um, yeah. different cultures go at play, and really, I think that's what they're. I mean, I, and I, I honestly am not prepared to even talk about the any racial issues in Vancouver. But my experience up there has been. One that is an, or a, a, extremely diverse and welcoming, and and uh, an interesting cultural mix. Well, and that's what I'm trying to drive us back to. I think that's what we all want, which is a diverse stew with some commonalities that all bring us together. And again, my and your worry point is, is English language is English. English one com- of those com- I worry that sometimes that we are losing the commonalities that bring us together, and so then we divide well, but, ourselves. You know, Jamie, that's interesting. The fact of the matter, though, I, in, in my opinion, and I don't, I, we look at the, the issue of not just immigration, but the, the English versus Spanish, or English and Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but you know what? I, I, I need to learn how to speak Spanish, and every American in this country, in my opinion, needs to learn how to speak Spanish, and I'll tell you why, because if you look at statistics, and, and especially 2020, where you will have 
soon. You will have the minority being the majority. Right now, one out of five children under the age of five in the United States, in, in the United States happens to be Hispanic. And that, that's an ever-growing population, which means what comes with that will, will be those Spanish individuals who do not speak English. So that would tell me that somehow in this, because we are used to what we've been used to in this country, but again, with, with the, the Hispanic growth in the United States, we really have to consider, we have to consider somehow in this both languages. Mm-hmm. I just don't see how we, we can't. Well, and I... I, I think about a friend of mine who lives in Switzerland, and she came over here as an exchange student when we were in high school. She spoke seven languages in high school. And we were so jealous yeah. of her. I mean, how cool yeah. was that? That's good. That she, you know, was able to, and, and of course, granted, over there, it's much easier to travel and closer together, and you can shoot down to France and those kinds of things. But So they have more opportunities, I think, to develop those skills. But I was envious as a high schooler here in the United States, that she could do that, and all I could do was speak English. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because it, I, I was in Greece last year, this time last year, for, for a wedding, and we were at a, a wonderful little villa with a sort of communal, communal breakfast every morning, and there was this couple from Germany. And, uh, and we spent a great deal of time talking about politics and culture and the differences between, you know, Western Europe and the United States. And they, their comment, I mean, they too speak seven languages. And, and I'll never forget the gentleman said, you know, I said, I'm very jealous. And he said, well, remember, culturally in Europe, language is not a question. You just go learn them. It's, it's not a question because you want to be able to communicate with, with, as many people as you can. Language is not a barometer of culture. Mm. Well, it's like Mary said, you have to, right? Because you're, the countries are so small and you're so interlinked. And it's like if every single one of our states had a different language, and that would be what it would be like. That would be what it would be like, And, yeah. and we don't. And, and maybe we pick up the... Because we've talked about before in this show about uh, rite of passage and things that keep us together as a culture and those sorts of things. And it's maybe one of the things we had to pick up on another time because it is interesting what keeps us together as a culture. Uh, and, and that's some of my worries. So. Yeah. Well, on that note, you have... Uh, You've opened up quite a can of worms, haven't you, Jamie? I'm happy. I, 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 I can't I, believe you did that in the, in the, the, the last, like, last 30 <laughs> seconds of the show. Have you seen How to Eat Fried Worms? No. Speaking of worms, have you guys? No. No. Ten worms, though. I'd do it. You would eat ten worms? Absolutely. For what? I don't know, just for fun. Some people would do it just for food. Yes. They, well, there you go. There I you would. Go. Yeah. Why not? You know, Charlita, I, I'd like to take the time to thank you so much for spending your time with us for the next uh, for this last hour. It's been very interesting. Uh, Excellent insights and and uh, appreciate the invite. Yeah, we sure appreciate it. This is uh, it's been a good discussion. We got to. We, uh, I think we could go much much longer. Yeah, we. Could. Yeah, so That's hopefully you'll come good. back on with us again. Oh, it's a, a lot of fun. I just appreciate that you all are doing this work and Pete's doing what he's doing, and I need to get on so I can you know listen to some of these other shows that you've had. I'm angry now that <laughs> I can't. <laughs> where? Well, we will. Uh, I will uh, send you the link to directly to this show and and uh, as well as to our uh, our website and um, and we'll get you on board. But again, thank you and and uh, we'll go ahead and and sign off uh, you, uh, on behalf of all of us. Uh, Charlita Shelton, uh, diversity officer with University of Phoenix, and and the rest of the crew, Mary, Jamie, Pete. This has been Tuesday Noon. We'll see you next week.
This has been Tuesday Noon for September 12, 2006, a service of University of Phoenix. For more information on the show, catch up with us on our website at www.tuesday12.com and write us. We look forward to hearing from you at the show at tuesday12.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, Tuesday Noon. <laughs>